Welcome to Cooper Talk. I'm your host, Steve Cooper. Remember, I'm only as hip as my guests. I got to tell you something, people. I uh, It's that time where I want to go out and uh, get a Christmas tree for me and Joanne, but it's unbelievable how expensive these things have gotten. I remember when I was a kid, you know, it seemed like they were like 10 bucks. Maybe it wasn't because I was little and it was, you know, years ago. But I went to get a Christmas tree last year and uh, I went to get it from a, the, at the high school down the street from me. And they wanted like 75, 85 bucks. And I'm like, it's a Christmas tree. And I want to get the, uh, I don't mind getting the artificial, but Joanne won't, won't do it. And she's like, then where are we going to put it? I go, we have storage in a place. So I have to go look this week. I went to Home Depot last year. And, and what cracked me about that was all their, all of them were wrapped up. So you sat there and you want to get a Christmas tree, but they're all wrapped up and you can't get them. And you sit there and you don't know if they look good or not. Anyway, we have a great show today. We have a guy, uh, yeah, he's, he's a great actor. He's directed, and I think he was just playing guitar. If I may not be, I'm not wrong. But um, my guess is John Grise. <laughs> How you doing, John? Hey, what's going on, Steve? So, are you are you, are you a, a guitar player besides being an actor? Do you, do you pick up the axe? I am. Uh, you know, I, yes. I, I'm. You know, music. I've been playing music for years, and uh, actually, I started out. Um, my brothers were all uh, musicians, so my grandfather. You know, a lot of music in my family, so I, I was kind of the black sheep musician in that in that I didn't really study. I just kind of watched everybody from the corner and kind of picked up stuff and then would go, you know, steal away. Uh, and when I wasn't like looking at Playboy or something, I was playing, you know, a ukulele or a guitar or something. So now the acting you come from a you come from a family where your 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 mom was an actress, right? And your father was a writer director. Yes. Now, so my father, uh, yeah, he directed a lot of uh, a lot of movies, a lot of television. He passed away though quite young. He, he had an untimely death. Uh, he died in 1977. I was quite young when he when he went, and um, and yeah, and my mom had been an actress for a long time, and then kind of stopped to raise four boys, and then went back to it, uh, uh, and didn't quite have the you know the resurgence I think that she had. Originally, when she, you know, the, the career that she originally had, but you know, but she was always, you know, doing something, whether it's theater or something. Now, now you though, you got a, a very early start, right? I mean, you weren't you're in one of your father's movies with Charlton Heston when you were like eleven. Yeah, I was actually nine. Uh, actually, it might have been eight. I think I was eight uh, when we started working, and I turned nine just after we finished shooting. So, I. Uh, yeah, I basically, it's a complete fluke. I, you know, my tooth was knocked out, and my father, we had just moved to Los Angeles from New York, and we were living on the beach, you know, by the beach, and um, and he was directing this film at Paramount, and uh, he had to take me to the dentist to fix my tooth, you know. I'd actually broken it in New York, and I had a temporary, you know, they wanted to get a cat finally, because I'd had one tooth for the longest time. And then... Um, he didn't want to take me all the way back to the beach, so he just said, well, he's not going back to school, he's just going to come with me to the studio, and it just so happened that day, he was in his little office writing on the Paramount lot, and I started talking to him, and he just stopped me and said, I can't talk right now. Go, there's nobody playing on the Western Street, which is called the Bonanza Street. He said, go out there, goof around, don't break anything, don't mess anything up, just, you know, and come back in an hour or so, we'll get lunch, you know, that kind of thing, and while I was walking out, the producers were walking in the building, and they asked me if I 
And I said, yeah, you know, because that's what everybody called him Father Tommy. And then, of course, eventually they figured out that while they were interviewing me, they took me to their office to interview me, and they gave me a Coke, which I wasn't allowed to have. You know, they were, my parents were anti-soda. And, um, and, you know, not that we're Mormon or anything, but um, they just were smart. But, but um, we... Um, started talking and then they called my father in the next room and they said hey we got the kid and my father came running in and he was like are you kidding he's not an actor he's an idiot you know <laughs> kind of thing and and then uh they convinced him to screen test me and and of course the test seemed to go horribly because all these other kids were in and out so quickly and i took over an hour and i was laughing and i didn't know for real i'll do it that kind of thing and he went home that night and told my mother don't worry he'll never be an actor not going to happen. Don't worry. It's all good. Because my mother was freaked out by the idea of it. And um, um, then they, they called my father the next day and they said, you better come in here and take a look at these dailies. And next thing you know, I was on my way to Bishop, California to shoot this movie. Now, what was that like? I mean, because you're just, you're just a kid. I mean, did you, did you even know who yeah. Charlton Heston was? And did you, I mean, I know your, your family, your, your parents were involved in it, but you know, it's, that's your parent, like as a kid, that's your parent's job. You know what I mean? It's like, you're yeah. a kid. You're not yeah. supposed to be. You're not supposed to be doing that job. What was it like when you first went on set? Did you have any clue as to what go, was what you would have to do? No. You know the interesting thing. I, I have to admit that. Um, you know, my father would from time to time when he was coming up to the ranks, and I was a little kid. He would take me and my brothers to set. You know, my father directed Combat. And he directed Route sixty six. He directed all these early. 60s television shows uh, and we would sometimes visit in a company and then sometimes people would come over to the house that he worked with and so I I, I didn't really you know they all seemed just kind of like normal people to me you know I, I you know in a weird way I I, I don't think I the first person that I, when I walked on the set of you know yeah Charlton Heston was bigger than life and, and there was something kind of aloof uh, and 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 because he was involved in his character, you know, but 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 very sweet. But the people that blew my mind were like uh, Ben Johnson and Slim Pickens, and not because I really remember them from movies, but because they seemed like real cowboys, and and they were, you know. So to me, I was more uh, enamored with 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 real cowboys, with, with real the guys who were really those guys, you know. Um, and so for me, it wasn't, um, I don't know, it, it, it was, I never really, you know, you're at that age, you don't process it, you just kind of go along with it, you don't ever have a sit-down moment where you're going, oh my God, I'm making a movie. You don't even think about it, you don't even know it's going to end up on a screen, you're not even in that mode of thought whatsoever, you're just like, whatever, you know, here I am, okay, this is cool, this will be fun, you know. Um, and so much so that afterwards I got offered a lot of movies. I got offered The Cowboys with John Wayne. I got offered The Reavers with Steve McQueen. And my parents, rather than turn them, turn the movies down, they would come to me and say, what do you want to do? And I'd say, no, I don't. I don't want to do it. Because I I had three older brothers who were kind of kicking my ass a little bit for being the, you know, the... Uh, you know, when, when when I was a kid, if you were an actor, you might as well have been a ballerina. You know what I mean? So, especially with three older brothers who were like, oh, here comes the actor, you know, that kind of thing. <laughs> so I turned everything down. I, I mean, the offers came until I was about 13, and that was the end of it. And then I just decided one day I'd give it a shot, you know, try it. 
Now, how old were you when you decided to give it a shot? I mean, and it's funny because you already had had some success, and you did, you did turn those things down. Which you know, as just once again, you're you're a kid. You don't you know, and you said you don't feel like getting your ass kicked every day by your brothers. It's even worse if you were doing more movies. But when did you decide to sit there? I mean, at what age did you say I'm going to give this a shot? And then how did you pursue it after that? Well, you know, when I was I just uh, turned eighteen. And uh, I decided I was going to try and go to a night class for acting. And a friend of my father's, who was an actor named Paul Mantee, was teaching this class. And I went to it. And I'll never forget, my father picked me up and he's like, you know, so what do you think about this class? And I said, I think it's a crocket. <laughs> I just basically told him I thought it was terrible. And my, which my father just laughed out loud. He, he, you know, because he didn't know, and he he'd come in a couple of times, and and you know, because Paul Mantee was a friend of my father's, sometimes my father would come down as a favor and 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 look at scenes with these actors and talk. You know, and my father was very giving that way. But but the fact that his response was that way when I said I think it's kind of a crock, he. Uh, I think it blew his mind because I think that that was the first time that he recognized that I might have a sensitivity beyond, because I think he felt kind of the same way without saying so. He was like, I'm doing a favor with my friend, but this is kind of stupid, you know. And um, um, it, it just felt all, it, it just felt too, you know, flowers and rainbows and, you know, just like everybody was amazing and everything. It was just too, it just wasn't nuts and bolts enough for me. And I think my father probably had instilled that in me at some point when I was younger. So that, that probably was why he laughed so hard, because it was echoing something that he probably felt but wouldn't say out loud. <laughs> you know. Uh, and But I think that that was the beginning of like, well, this, this seems like something that you really want to do, you know. And then Stella Adler came into town for a summer, and I took her class, and then uh, just kind of loaded up the truck, uh, so to speak, and jumped on a plane and went back to New York and worked as a busboy and, you know, couch surfed for six months that I was there uh, studying with her. And then, of course, my father died and had to come back to L.A. And I was back in L.A. for about six months. And then I just turned around and went back to New York and continued studying with Stella. So I, you know, and uh, and I, it just was one of those things. I pretty much detached myself from from what my father did and I just thought the only way to do it right is to step, step out on my own and do it myself, you know. So, so, you, rely on him. so you were in New York. When you got done studying with Stella in New York, did you try to get acting work in New York or did you decide to come back to L.A.? Well, I came back originally to L.A. to, you know, my, my brothers and I all kind of lived in a house together to kind of get over the fact that our father had died and it was just, I was in a daze for months and months. Meanwhile, though, I had an agent in Los Angeles who I'd met, um, whom I'd met a few years before, and who said, let's, you know, you're a young kid, let's take you on. And so, you know, I got sent out for a couple of roles. I did a couple of small TV shows and, you know, put a little money away, and then I just went back to New York. And then when I was there, I did a lot of play readings, and I did audition for a lot of things, but I, I was not you know, I wasn't, I was still kind of green, and I think that it was uh, um, a little bit, it felt a little soon for me, I wasn't quite ready, and then came back again to L.A., and then started doing a lot of little crappy films, but, you know, and, and not knowing what I was doing, I mean, I was still, at that point, kind of lost, you know, but it took a little time, but I figured it out. 
Well, you were getting you were getting TV parts and stuff like that. When did you feel you were actually getting into your groove and not feeling green? I mean, how long was it into that? I mean, because you had the good training, you had you, you were getting booked, but when did you start sitting there and going, okay, you know what? I'm, you know, when, when were you getting the confidence that says, you know, I'm not green, you know, I'm 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 ready for the big leagues? That's a really good question because you know you figure I started out when I was 19 and. Um, and I remember my father directed a film called Helter Skelter, which was based on the Manson uh, murders. And he actually said to me, I was going to school at the time. And this time that I took a break to try and go to college, and I realized that wasn't going to work. But I was going to school, and I came into town, and he said, you know, there's a part in this movie I'm doing that I'd like for you to actually read for. My father was not not one to, make, to just hand out work he you know he wanted somebody to earn it especially his kid he wanted me to understand that you can't nothing comes easy you know which i think was a really good foundation for me and uh um and so i i said yeah i'll I'll read for it you know and then i didn't hear anything about it and i went back to school for a couple of weeks and then i came back to la to visit and my father was having a cocktail party and i went out to see him and he just dropped a script in my lap and said, go to page 18, and uh, you're going to do it. I said, okay, when do you want to do it? He goes, now. And I was like, now? In front of all these people? He said, yeah, now. He wanted to see that I would have the guts to do it in front of a group of people because he understood, my father was really bright, and he understood that a child lives in such a make-believe world that it was very easy for them to kind of block everything out. But I hadn't acted in 10 years, and... And, you know, while I was doing Will Penny, I was able to just kind of, it was just like fantasy, you know, it was just like, whatever, you know, it was very easy. Um, but, you know, you get older, you, you get, you know, there's a lot of, you get insecure, or you get, you know, you go through puberty, you get all these things that change your whole outlook, your id and your superego, whatever they call it. And, um, and I, I, um, I, I went in the other room with one of my brothers and sat there for, 20 minutes working on it and then brought me out and did the scene and said you got the job and that was it and 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 that got and he said to me he goes okay I'm going to give you this job you're going to get your SAG card and he said and you're not going to get a goddamn thing from me else this is it you're on your own you want you want this life you've got to go get it yourself I'm not going to be your fallback and that was a great thing for him to tell me because um that's what really, I mean, I didn't, I, it wasn't in my nature to do that anyway. I didn't want to rely on him. I wanted, I was too proud. I wanted to prove that, no, I'm going to do this on my own. I was too competitive and, you know, had an athlete's attitude about it, you know, that I didn't want anything for, for nothing, you know, so. Um, but then fast forward to this agent and getting these, these little jobs, I still never felt quite like I was grounded until I, I read For Real Genius. I think... At that time, I I now knew, you know, after five or six years of grinding it out, failing it in a couple of, you know, teen films and being just absolutely horrible and, and, uh, but learning from my mistakes and, and, and doing some TV shows that were a little better than others. You know, I, I've started, I knew I was starting to gain a foothold, but I was still, you know, it's one thing when you study, it's another thing when you put it into practical use, you know. And I think Real Genius was kind of the culmination of finally 
understanding that I wanted to approach the role with everything in mind that I had learned, and yet at the same time, you know, with my sensitivity or whatever it is to that character. And then that was the beginning for me. I mean, I never looked back after Real Genius. I never had to go and get a regular job again. You know, that was the beginning of just consistently working and, um, and uh, you know, sometimes starving and sometimes walking away from it. I mean, I walked away in the late 80s to direct music videos. I was directing rap videos for a while and then went back to it. You know, I just bounced around. I mean, it was, it's always kind of a, a bit of a, a battle for me to, to stick it out all the time because I felt like I could be better serving the world as a scientist or something, you know. But I, you know, but I kept coming back. Well, you're coming back. No, no, the thing, the thing about real genius is, like, when you, you know, you said that was your turning, you know, you felt confident, you put everything into the role. Did you, I mean, looking back now, the, the, the movie still has legs. Everyone knows it. You know, I mean, people know your character. Did you think, it's a cult classic. I mean, let's be honest. I mean, it's yeah. like, you know, everyone remembers at the end, the Tears for Fears song going when the balls, everything's popping up, exploding. Right. But, the popcorn, popcorn yeah. yeah. Did you think, think that I mean when you do a movie like that because Val Kilmer was relatively not that known I don't think and no this was his second film yeah and so did you think that the only film he had done was top secret uh, at that point did you think it would have legs to this day that like young kids would be watching it because that's one of those movies that you know because because of TV and Comedy Central and TBS they replay movies did you think that the kids and teenagers today would still be watching that when you read for it, I mean, I know it was a, a... No, absolutely not. No, because there was no such thing at that point. I mean, the ancillary market at that point was the Z channel or some cable channel, the thing, you know, that it was just so new. People were barely paying attention to um, to the idea of video after, after a movie comes out. It was so brand new, and it was like, you know, yeah, you will watch it on Betamax. You know, I mean, it was, you know, it was a surprise for all of us and for me in particular because I was, um, you know, the film got such great reviews when it came out. And uh, I'll never forget, I'd gone overseas to do a movie afterwards. And while I was overseas, it came out. So I didn't go to the premiere. I didn't know anything. You know, I, I missed that party, so to speak, you know. And um, so as I was flying back, on the plane, I picked up the Time magazine, and there was a review in, a, in the magazine. That was the first I'd heard anything about it since I'd done it, you know. And the review was just amazing. But then I'd gotten back and, and found out that the box office was, you know, relative to the, the popularity in, you know, the critic pop, the critical popularity. It was it only had done like twelve million dollars. So it was like, yeah, well, another one coming gone, you know. And um, um, but. But then all of a sudden, it just started to catch fire. It caught fire on cable, and then it caught fire in, in the video stores, and, and then it just it just kept going. And that that was really where it started to take off, you know. Now, did you start getting recognized from that movie? Oh yeah, yeah. And now, how would people react to you? Because your character is off the wall, so it's like you know, because people sometimes don't can't can't distinguish between an actor and the person. Did you have some weird interactions? Well, you know, it was the funny thing was the cool guys or whatever, the hip dudes or whatever, hip girls, whatever, they, they never, ever recognized me. But every nerd under the sun 
totally related to me, totally recognized me, and and fawned over me. That they, you know, I I become kind of like the poster child for their movement, you know, in, a, in an odd way. And 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 what was really interesting is that we did uh, Martha Coolidge and I and Val Kilmer and Gabe Jarrett did a did one of the first ever uh, you know chats on online. Uh, you know, it was such a new thing. It was so unheard of at that time when it came out. We went to some computer place in Westwood that was like a, really more like a facility. And it had like a, it had a whole system. It had all these, you know, IBM machines and all this stuff in there. And we were, we were going to, we were going to go out into the world, which was relatively small, but it was a good promotional thing for the film. You know, the idea that, that we were doing something that was well ahead of its time, you know. And, um, you know, I only wish that I found out if something was, uh, you know, going to go public at that point, because I, I would have been rich today if I got the stock. But, um, so, but, you know, um, it was well ahead of its time. I mean, it really was. So, so you're doing that, and then, you know, I, look through, I always look through IMDb. You're acting a lot. You're doing dramas. You're doing all different kinds of shows. And then eventually, you end up on Martin. Now, had you, was that your yeah. first series regular and had had you had pilots because of Real Genius because I know back in the day you know it seems like everybody you know who had got a movie was in a popular movie or was doing guest spots was getting a pilot did you get any pilots before like you got on the show Martin were you, were you anything where you were in a pilot you thought the series might take off or what happened with that I, I did a pilot I did um, you know the interesting thing is I um, and this is and, and not to to, to to shine a negative light on my career or whatever you call it. Um, I, I've not ever really been, you know, I mean, if you look over my IMDb, I think I've done maybe eight, maybe seven studio films ever. You know, I, I, I haven't done a lot of mainstream stuff. And I also, and I, a lot of it is, a te- you know, it's kind of a, a slam on some of the representation that I've had in the past. You know, it, it, it's very... In, it's incumbent on the people that represent you to give you the opportunities to get into some of the things you know that you need to get into. Um, and I, I I didn't read for a lot of pilots. I did do a pilot for a show called High School USA, which became a movie uh, movie of the week with all the the, the top TV kids that were uh, really the flavor of the moment, like Michael J. Fox and and Todd Bridges and and uh, you know, all the people from uh, Facts of Life and, and you know, they, they created this high school movie and I was in it and I signed the deal when I did the movie that that would be part of the pilot and of course they did end up doing the pilot and Crispin Glover was in it and a couple other people um, and the pilot was not picked up. Um, but beyond that, I tested for a few pilots. I, I tested for, uh, I'd say maybe two or three uh, and then Martin came along and... Um, and truly, when I tested for that show, I had just done a play down at South Coast Repertory, and I think I was absolutely flat broke, and it was like, it couldn't have come at a better time, and yet at the same time, they never gave me a script to read. They kept having me read from the kind of cryptic and, and uh, abstract side. So I'd come back, and it'd be a little different each time, and they brought me back, oh my gosh, so many times, and finally it was between me and this one other 
guy and then I finally I got the job and you know and that lasted for two seasons and then they changed the motif from the radio station to a television station and so Garrett Morris and I um, were, were let go which at that, that time in my life I was I couldn't have been happier to be let go I, I asked to get off were you just not I mean why were you just not feeling creative about it or just I mean you absolutely know, it was frustrating it was just frustrating anytime you try and give input on a show like that you've got a guy who's absolutely running everything with an iron fist and 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 you know and he's proven and he's funny and he has all the, the trappings of it but he's not he's not open and he's not available you know and so it just became you know uh it, it just it, i felt like i was written into a corner and, it, and i and it just was you know I would sit on a studio lot all day and then, you know, come and rehearse my one theme and go back to my trailer and, or whatever and sit. And I couldn't go do anything else. I was signed. And, um, you know, it was frustrating. Frustrating. Now, you said you had uh, walked away for a while and directed rap videos. How'd you, how'd you get into that? How, I mean, how, how did that whole thing come up? I mean, that's, that's something, you know, it's just you're acting and you're working but what you just did you want to just really learn to direct was it maybe an homage to your father I mean what you know what why, why did you decide to sit there and do start doing that kind of directing well that's a, that's a good question uh, I, I'd always wanted to be a director I mean I really felt like I got into acting as a as a conduit to directing I never thought that I would be acting as long as I, I as I was and so in the late 80s I just decided all right you know I, I'd always been shooting film and stuff but I finally bought a really really nice movie camera and I found a local band in Los Angeles and I did a music video for them and on you know out of my own pocket and there was a thing that used to be on MTV called the basement tapes at the end of each month on a Sunday night they would show six uh, videos of different bands from all and they had submissions from all over the world and um if you you know it's one thing i mean they took they, i mean they had hundreds and hundreds of submissions these people were, you know making them on video making them on super eight making them any way they could and i made this video and and we got accepted uh this band got accepted and um it was a rock video for a band called flies on fire and uh we I shot this. I'd been shooting cameras my whole life, so I understood that stuff. I understood all this stuff, and I just, you know, taught myself to load the camera and started figuring out tricks, pushing film, doing weird stuff, cross-processing, you know, just all on my own, reading about it and then just doing it. And then I shot this video and cut it together, and then it got accepted into the basement tapes, and then eventually won on the night. You know, people call in, and they vote for their favorite video, and we, we won. And they got, you know, they got, uh, um, you know, like an entree to a bunch of record companies and then finally get signed by one. So it turned out to be a win-win situation. And, and I picked up uh, a guy who wanted to rep me and, you know, we started working over at Priority Records at the same time that, you know, uh, NWA and all that, those guys were over there. And it just, it just I, I did a few videos over there and, you know, and realized that it was so low budget and my fee was a percentage of the video I had to go back to acting just to, to survive you know I had to get a job to pay me something you know so I, I kind of walked away after about six videos all said and done you know that's funny and it was such it was such an early time in rap I mean that's that's what's amazing oh, yeah. you know it's like but you know you you were in the forefront now you, you probably see you go wow man this has changed I oh. remember when the videos were nothing 
Oh, well, they, you know, but, I mean, I remember I, I had a video budget for a song. They gave me, uh, uh, like, $18,000, and they said, but could you try and make two videos out of this, two songs? And I'm like, you know, I'm shooting on film. I'm, you know, I'm the DP as well, so I'm the director and the DP. And uh, I'm like, all right, you know, I'll try. And I just remember, I sh- and I had to shoot it in one day, and it was an 18-hour day of shooting, and I, at the end of the day, I, my eyeballs wouldn't focus anymore. They'd been in the eye cup of the camera so long, I couldn't focus anymore. My eyes were not, it were just it, absolutely incapable. So I'd have to have somebody walk over and look through the camera and say, make that focus. All right, and then go back and shoot, you know. Um, and, and it was, a, I did three videos for a band called Low Profile. And in the first video called Pay Your Dues, we had... Uh, Ice Cube and Ice Tea in it, and you know this was their their, their launch video, you know, and and Coolio was in it. I mean, there was a lot of people in this video, and Coolio, I think, had just gotten out of jail, you know, and uh, and and it was early. It was gangster rap. It wasn't hip hop. It wasn't you know. It was not. Uh, it was true gangster rap, and that's there was an absolute definitive separation. And uh, I'll never forget we were shooting this. At this one, I found a garage in West Hollywood underneath a building that was being renovated, and we used it as as one of our stages, and um, a big garage, you know, like an underground garage. And um, uh, my producers brought in a bunch of guys for extras, but you know, it was supposed to be a crowd scene, and they all had like fades, and you know, they all looked like kid and play. Well, when they showed up, you know, WC, who was the head of the group, said, "You know what I mean." I'm going to tell you right now, somebody's going to get shot. So you got to get rid of these people. And I was like, what? I like, you know, I didn't understand the cultural difference. You know, I, I was not, a, I learned it right then and there. I was like, if I turned the producer, Tom Gorai, who's now a very successful producer, and I said, Tom, get rid of these guys. Get rid of all of them. We'll just get other people in here, you know. Uh, and, and, and or shoot this later, you know. But, but we did. We had to clear everybody out. They were all the wrong Wrong tribe, wrong tribe. Crazy. And it's interesting now how they're all integrated. It's all, you know, one, basically. It's got very commercialized and, and, and a lot less hardcore. So, so so you go back to acting, and then now in your acting career, you also ended up on a Seinfeld episode, which that must amaze you now, because once again, I mean, Seinfeld was a hit, but did you also think that that, I mean, Seinfeld's on like every night. I mean, you that episode's probably played thousands of times when you, you yeah. know, I mean, and now what was the audition process for that? Did they just say, we need a homeless guy? I mean, how was the whole, I mean. <laughs> no, basically, by that time, I was, you know, I, I was, I had the fantasy in my mind that I wasn't quite as bald as I was. You know, I still had hair up on top of my head, but I had a big bald spot, you know. And, and, and when I was sitting out in the waiting room, there were a lot of guys who were like flat out bald, right? And I was like, and I remember I walked in and I read, and it was Jerry Seinfeld and Larry David and some of the other producers and the director, Andy. And I just kind of looked over at them. I said, you know, I don't know if I'm bald enough. <laughs> and Jerry looked at me and goes, you're bald enough. <laughs> and I was like, that was kind of it, you know. Uh, and at that moment, you know, it was, it felt great, but it, I had just, I had just got the job doing Get Shorty. 
And so I just literally found out that I was, that I got that job and that they had seen many, many people for the role that I got. And I mean, a lot, a lot of them well-known, you know, like Matthew McConaughey and, and, and Steve Buscemi and, and scores of others. And I was the last guy to walk in the office. I mean, you know, you talk about coming to the party late. Well, I showed up and Barry Sonnenfeld just said, you're the guy. And, you know, I was with the, the late great agent at the time, Susan Smith, who called me and she said, John, I want to say something to you. And you have to understand this. This doesn't happen anymore in this town. What just happened to you does not exist. It doesn't happen. And I just don't know what you did in there, but I don't know what, I don't know. I don't know how, it, how this happened. And, you know, she was very, very smart, but very, very cynical. And she understood how the business worked. And she said, this just doesn't make sense. It's an anomaly to, to me. And congratulations. But you got the job. So I had just literally landed that job. And, you know, walking on air, I walk, walked into the Seinfeld thing. And next thing you know, I, I was doing that before shooting Get Shorty, you know. So you you get both of them, and then now how do you end up on the Pretender? Which that was a good show, you know. That was a uh, that was that was one of those shows that ran for a while. I know you directed an episode of that, I believe. But uh, yeah, yeah, I did. I love that show. I love those people, and uh, and and it was like a it was a wonderful wonderful professional experience because everybody was so so great, you know. Well, what was it like being on a series again? Because as you said in in your first series, you know, with Martin, you know, as I said, you felt like. You were in a corner. You know, you didn't have any. The, you couldn't be creative. You just go to your trailer. With this, did you feel more involved in the process, and was it a better time? Oh yeah, I mean, without question, it was uh, way more satisfying. The way that the way that I had got onto the show, interestingly enough, was I I I read um, for a guest star on the second episode of the first season, and. Uh, and they brought me back for the third episode, and they brought me back for the fourth episode, and they were paying me nothing, like literally nothing. You know, you're in here for a day, we're gonna give you a few hundred bucks, you know. And then finally after, uh, you know, like five episodes, they said, you know, we're a little short on episode one, we need to add about four minutes, so we're gonna do a scene with you, we're gonna add another scene. And I was ecstatic, because it was like, oh great, get paid double for doing one show. You know? And then by episode 10, they said, um, you know, the casting director called me at home and said, listen, they're, they're, they're going to offer you a regular role on this thing, and I just have to suss it out with you. Are you uh, are you into it? Do you want to do it? And I, at that time, I, I was afraid of being signed to the show, and I kept saying, look, maybe just pay me more money. I'll keep coming back, but just I don't, ha- I don't have to be signed, and I don't have to sign a seven-year deal, you know? And she's like, no, it's not going to work that way. you got to sign it or not, you know? And I just... I, you know, it, it, you talk about having great op- options. You know, it was such a wonderful thing when they came to me, and I just, you know, I'm so glad that I did it. And I remember calling Steve Mitchell, Steve Long Mitchell, who was the creator of the show with Craig Van Sickle, and I said, Steve, I'm going to do the show. I want to sign the show, and I'm so excited and thank you so much. But I want to ask you for something. Could you promise me that if I do the legwork, if I go to the meetings, if I in the story meetings, if I go to the editor's rooms and sit in the editing rooms and go to the, do everything that you want me to do, will you let me direct so that the show gets picked up? And he said, yes, I will. I will. And that's what I did, you know. And he did. He honored his word. 
Now, what was that like when you went to helming a TV show that you were already acting in? I mean, is it, is, is it a different feel? And it's also, you know, you're a regular on the show. So if you suck at directing, the crowd, the cast is going to be like, oh, God, busting your balls probably. I mean, what was it well, like? Well, you know, there are, <laughs> there are things that happen, you know, obviously. Um, one of the things that, you know, I think that they were all surprised that the minute I, I changed hat that I just really took control. And and uh, and I'd seen, I'd been around it enough with my father. There was an osmosis that just naturally, just the way he acted on a set and the way he operated and the way he was uh, so diligent about his work, uh, I think that it just kind of came, that sense, sensibility came natural. And really the breaking down the scenes and, and shooting it the way I want to shoot it. Because at this point, by the time this came along, many times we'd work with directors who would start shooting a scene a certain way and I might walk up to them and say, you know, you might just be better off doing this because of what we're doing here and where this is going. And they might not understand the dynamic of the cast. And I would, you know, very quietly, surreptitiously pull them aside and say, what if, what if you did this? Just think about this for a second. And invariably they would say that is uh, thank you so much and then they come and they do it you know because i felt like that. i could see people that were shooting themselves in a the corner that's the other benefit of working on a series you start to see the people who who really get it know what they're doing and you get to see the people who are uh, a little bit uh, uh, over their head and you really you really see it i mean nowadays i think directing is uh, i think directors are a lot better but at the same time i think that they have a lot more latitude whereas back in the 80s and the 90s and the early 2000s i think that there was this uh, that you know it, there was a certain protocol and certain uh, you know visual formula that you had to stick to and you had to follow certain guidelines that, that now i think are a little more lax they, they're a little more into the creativity of the director you know uh, yeah, but it was more about the integrity of the show. Well, it's always the integrity of the show, but about keeping the visual integrity of the show, the stylistic integrity of the show, whatever it is. Um, there, you know, there, there was uh, that sense, and and you'd get with some people who were really you'd see them, and they'd be floundering. I mean, and you know, it'd be a double-edged sword because if they if if they did listen to you, great, but invariably. You, you you couldn't tell them, you have to pick your battles. You couldn't tell them every scene where you have ideas because you'd be working with them for, you know, for days and you you know that you're going to be going late because they're, they're getting lost, you know. And back to the show that I did, there was one day that I did go late. Um, and, I mean, 15 hours, they came to shut me down and it just so happened that I finally finished that day. But, you know, I have to say that there was a little bit of a sabotage that had been pulled on that one by our lovely lead guy at the time. He he, um, he apparently misread his call sheet and came about three and a half hours late to the set. So I was, you know, my whole morning was with him, and then I was getting rid of him, and then I'd shoot all the other stuff. You know, I was trying to make it a good day for him, and he showed up about three and a half hours late, and uh, that I, you know, nothing was put on film for the first three and a half hours of the day, and then. Uh, and then, and then, uh, and then we started shooting. So, really, what would have been an eleven and a half hour day turned out to be a fifteen hour day. Now, did you ever get any static from when you made suggestions to some of these directors? Did you ever get any static from them? Like, you know, like, oh, well, like on the pretender, like, oh, what is this guy doing? Or it was mostly a smooth transition most of the time. 
No. You know, I, I mean, I think most directors are pretty savvy enough to, to go, um, you know, I wouldn't say specifically, uh, you know, you might want to put the camera here and do this. I mean, I would never go quite that far. I would say, hey, how about this? Like, if we're both all going to be right here, don't you think it would be cool if, you know what I mean? Like, it would be like more in the spirit of suggestion of like, I think that if we had it over there that way, then we, you know, we, we can break away from that and do, you know, the other part from this side. And, you know, they, they, they would digest it mathematically in their head. And ultimately, you know, at the end of the day, what they really want to do is get the day done, you know. And so uh, they, if they saw that it was clearly a shortcut and a way to go, they would do it, you know. But you, like I said, you have to pick your battles. You, you couldn't, you couldn't do it all the time. And, you know, I'd have to force myself to shut my mouth. You know, because I didn't, I didn't want to be that kind of guy to tell somebody how to do their job. But also at the same time, I didn't want to be like, you know, spending 18 hours on the set. You know, so right. some of it was survival, you know. So we were, and, and of course, you know, we, sometimes I would kind of mull it over with the cast members, you know, and, and that, that would happen. Now, going back to the thing that you said about being on the show and having a lovely experience, it was a lovely experience. And one of the reasons it was, and the reason it was creatively so much more satisfying is that Andrea Parker, Andy Parker, uh, is so intuitive and so savvy. And right away, she saw the domination that she could have over this person. It was something for her to play. And of course, I played along with it in such a way that they wanted me there. They wanted to keep that dynamic going all the time. And it they, you know, listen, any writer that sits on a show week after week after week, they want hooks. They want things that they can use. And it makes their, their job easier because when, when something, when there's nothing clicking in, a, in the relationships between two people or there's no sense of dynamic or something, they're constantly trying to figure out a way to conjure that stuff up. But if it's happening, if it automatically comes to life in front of their eyes via a scene and maybe as a surprise, which it did with Andrea Parker and I, that gave them something to every week. That gave them that thing that they can that they can fall back to that thing, and that relationship has it, it writes itself. You know, it really does, and it makes makes it so much easier. You know. So, so you're acting, you're writing, you're directing. You know, you direct videos, and you you you've had a successful career. And then now, what happened when Napoleon Dynamite came along? Did you? I mean, that movie. I mean. Did you ever see, once again, like Pure Genius, you know, it was a different time, but Napoleon yeah, Dynamite, I mean, I remember they had flip books, they had everything. I mean, what did you think when you read that script and how did it come about doing that script? Because did you know someone who was involved in it? Did you audition for it? I mean, no, no. Well, yeah, no, I didn't audition. What had happened was I was, um, I after The Pretender was over, I had made the jump. 100% to wanting to write a screenplay and direct a movie. So I, I quit. I called Susan Smith and I said, I'm done. And she said, well, interestingly, I am done too. I'm folding the office and I'm retiring. And then she went on to manage and she, you know, she handled Brian Dennehy and Tom Hulse. And she, I mean, you know, for a small agency, she was extremely successful. I think in the 10 years before she closed, she had five Academy Award nominees, which is relatively unheard of for a small office, you know. Uh, she had some remarkable talent, and um, but she retired, and I at that time I had quit. I quit acting, 
and uh, I didn't have any representation. I was sitting in my, you know, my guest room every day, in which I turned into an office, and I was just writing this screenplay and just working ten hours a day, just working, working, working this thing. And then one day I got a call from Jory White, and he was working on a film called The Big Empty with John Favreau and Kelsey Grammer and Daryl Hannah. And he called me and said, "What are you doing?" where are you? And I was like, I'm home. I'm writing. He said, well, what? I called Susan. She's folding her office. You quit the business? I said, no, I'm just not acting. And he said, well, I, I had an actor drop out of this movie called The Big Empty. Would you read the script and come up here to Baker, California and play this part if you're interested in it because they want you. And I said, well, send me the script, I'll read it. And I read it, and I called him back. I said, yeah, you know, what, what the heck, I'll come up and do this because I'm not doing anything, and, you know, I, I wasn't, money doesn't grow on trees, and I, I wasn't earning anything. So I went up there, and I did this movie, and it went really well. And then uh, I came back to L.A. and just went about my business again. And then uh, uh, this casting woman, uh, um, uh whose name just right at this moment slipped my mind, uh, Linda, <laughs> she passed away not long after she called me. She called me out of the blue and she said, I want you to meet this manager. She goes, I, I know you're not acting, but I want you to meet him. So I, she said, because I just, you know, I can't stand that you're not working, that you're not doing it. And so I went and met this young guy named David Cohn, who had absolutely no <laughs> It was kind of funny. And he was like, I said, look, I'm not going to sign anything. If you want to run with the ball, you know, be my guest. You, you go, go to town, do whatever you can. Uh, and I'll see what, what, I, what I feel like doing. But as you know, I'm just going to be home writing. So I didn't really hear from him. And then one day he called me and he goes, I got a call from a guy named Joy White, who was the same guy who was casting The Big Empty. He's casting this other low-budget movie, and they're offering you the part. And he said, it's like they're paying nothing. So... I'd suggest don't even bother reading it. And I said, no, send me the script. Because I, A, I totally trust Jory White, not number one. But two, I, I don't say no. You know, I, I first read before I say no, you know. And by page 15, I was laughing out loud. And I called him back. I said, you tell them I'll drive there. Uh, Whatever they're shooting, I'll be there. And um, that was it. I mean, basically, they just hired me. Uh, the way that they hired me was they were borrowing the editing room of The Big Empty, and Joy White was casting this movie because he had got them the editing room, and they offered it to Jason Lee and I think a couple other people, and they all turned it down, and then he said, take a look at this guy, and they showed my footage from The Big Empty, which hadn't been released yet. It was almost done. And they just said, let's offer, and they made the offer based on that one job, that one thing that I did, and that, that led to the movie, you know. Now, now, first of all, they they fitted you with hair. I know it's something that you know. What's, I mean, they they, get, they gave you hair for that movie. No, no, uh, that was all me. Basically, uh, what happened was Jared Hess came into town for one day, uh, and they called me up and said, "Okay, the director's in town. He's only in town for a day, and you know he just wants to talk to you before they start shooting." Because you you know I don't I wouldn't going to be going up to Idaho for two weeks. So I went and met him and he was just, the, he's just the sweetest, loveliest guy and he's very gentle and very soft-spoken and 
you know, very, very respectful. And he was like, I, I hope you don't mind, but do you mind if I talk to you a little about the character? And I was like, absolutely. So we walked outside, and he's standing there saying, well, here's what I think about Uncle Rico. And he was like looking at me, and he's kind of mulling over what he's going to say, and then he just says, well, he runs like this, and he just ran down the block. And I was like, I love this guy. Right away, I knew I loved him because it was like he, the first thing he did was, A, something physical, which is something that I always invest in whenever I'm doing something, and he ran down the block. you know. And it was very different than the way I ended up running in the movie, but he ran down the block like uh, Baywatch, you know, like, uh, what's his name? Hasselhoff. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like uh, Hasselhoff. And so, uh, and then he said, you know, I see him as a combination of you know, Burt Reynolds meets Elvis Presley meets David Hasselhoff. And I kind of looked at him and I said, say no more, done. And I, that was the end of our meeting. And on my way home that day, I passed by a Korean wig store yeah, for 40 bucks. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> true story. And, uh, and, and then bought the shoes. I found the shoes at a place. I thought I wanted to look for the shoes that this guy wears. And I found the shoes. And, um, I went up to Idaho, and when I got there, they did a fitting, and I was standing there, and I said, I got something to show you, and I, I said, let me put on the clothes, and then I put on the clothes, and I put on the hair, and I walked out, and they were like, well, and I said, never to be played as a wig, because I realized we have the wig with Pedro, and I don't ever want to take, the, you know, played as hair, but I, the cut was so bad 80s that I thought, this is like 80. This is like the guy trying to go back in time. Whether or not he's wearing a wig or not, it didn't matter to me. It was just that I wanted to really have that quintessential look. And they made me try everything on with and without the wig, and then they all agreed. And that was Aaron Rule and Jared Hess and Jeremy Kuhn and Jerusha Hess and um, a couple other people that were there and just said, yeah, the wig. So, and that was it. And, you know, the wig was not even real hair. You know, it was one of those wigs that was, you know, was going to fall apart right. in time. And it started, <laughs> it started to by the end of the shoot. Did, but, I mean, seriously, it's like that character. I mean, I don't know if you've seen on the internet, you know, like it's been in memes, like, you know, the Cowboys' new quarterback. Or this, I mean, oh, yeah. I mean, oh, what, yeah. what yeah. is that like? People forward me these things all the time. Yeah. What is that like when you see that and you go, "Holy crap, that's me!" I know. I, it, you know, it's kind of mind blowing. It's mind blowing. If that was when it got to be like that because I never thought that I, I knew the film was going to be a good film, and I knew that it was going to be. You know, I remember the day that I saw them shooting the scene between Lafonda and Kip where they, he takes off his shoes and he starts rubbing her feet under the table, which was all shot without sound, and it was just all visual, and that was my first day on set, and I was like, this is genius. This is, I mean, I was watching the monitor and watching him, and I walked away, and I made a phone call to a friend of mine who worked in distribution, and I said, I'm working on a film, and you better, you better come here, and I want you to meet these people. And she didn't get back to me. She never got back to me. And years, you know, not years, but like a year and a half later, she called me and she said, I will never not do that again. That was the biggest mistake I've ever made when I ignored your call. But, you know, it ended up being, obviously, the film that it became. You know, we, we didn't, we had no idea it was going to go that big. 
I mean, it's it's it was you know, and you got to do the uh, animated show, I believe, and I mean, I mean, so it was yeah. just it was something that it was. I mean, it was a phenomenon, and, and it was out of nowhere. I mean, no one. It was just amazing. Yeah, it it was, and it was kind of like the last great hurrah for independent film in a weird way. I mean, I think that you know people just aren't going to movies quite, you know, independent, particularly for independent films, quite the same way that they they were back then, and it was kind of the turning point. It seemed like that was the end of an era, and little did any of us know, you know, that that was kind of the end of it. You know, I think there have been a couple since then, but overall, they're, they're usually big budget movies. And, and you know, the, the thing, I remember we got nominated for a Spirit Award for Best New Director, and I got nominated for Best Supporting Actor, and, and I remember sitting there, and the film we were up against was Sideways, which an $18 million Fox film that was being called an independent film because it was financed and, and distributed through their independent arm. But it was no, at that time, it was the Independent Spirit Awards. It wasn't just the Spirit Awards. And I always thought that the criteria for people to be in there was for, you know, I just wanted to see Jared Head get his due because he'd written an amazing script with his wife, Jerusha. And and I, I felt like, you know, I didn't give a damn about, I mean, I was honored to be nominated. I, you know, I didn't care if I won or not. I, that was just great to be invited to the party. But I really did want to see him get that, you know, that acknowledgement because it really was, it was only a $340,000 movie, you know. Well, and that, and that, that's pretty amazing and shot on film. Now, we, we only have a few minutes left. I've seen hour flies. Um, what are you working on these days? Are you are you, are you directing now, or, or what are you working on? No, I have a new series on um, on Adult Swim, which I am absolutely just over the moon about. I love it. I love this show. It's called Dream Corp LLC. We just uh, ran the first six episodes, uh, and it is it's a live action show. It's produced uh, by uh, John Krasinski and Stephen Merchant. And, um, and Daniel Stesson, who's also the creator of the show and the director of the episodes and the writer. And it's, it's absolutely, it's brilliant. I mean, it's brilliant. And the people that see the show that get it really, really get it. But it is, it, it, we just got uh, an order for 14 more episodes. So we're going to be doing that for a while. And, um, and that's, I guess, you know, I guess that's my third or fourth series. I guess I was on the bridge for a while. That, I don't know. Yeah. So this is like, but this is like a regular guy. I'm the main dude in the show, and the, all the actors are incredible. Uh, Nick Weatherford, uh, Mark Prosh, Stephanie Allen, and uh, Ahmed Boucha, and and really a, an amazing cast. And so, you know, when you're shooting these episodes that are 11 and a half minutes long, and it's live action, and then half animated but rotoscope animation, so we act out everything and then animate on top of it like Waking Life or something like that, you know. It's, um, it's, it's a, and it's a brilliant show. It's very kind of like reminds me of early 70s English kind of, you know, very dry humor and slash psychedelic, you know. It's just, it's, it's brilliant. Uh, and we've, we've had Liam Neeson on the show and we've had uh, uh, June Squid, uh, you know, and and who was the in the, the older woman who was in Nebraska and she was wonderful, uh, and you know it's just been it's been really really cool really really cool. I'm excited about that. 
And, and I'm writing. I'm writing. A, I've written a, a couple of films, and you know, I'm writing another one right now. And I, I was last year, a little over a year ago, I was in pre-production to direct another film, and and literally on the day, day seven on the countdown to shooting, we had our cast, we had our crew, we were in our studio down in Baton Rouge, and the producers um, um, informed us that they had to back out of the whole project and. Unfortunately, the lead actor that we'd hired had, had at that time was sick, and things changed, and it just fell apart. And you know the way it goes. So now, Dreamcore Dream LLC is on Adult Swim. Yes, it's on Adult Swim. You can go to DreamCorpLLC.com or go to AdultSwim.com and look up the, the show. And if you go to DreamCorp LLC, it'll be they, they kind of sold it as an as an advertisement. So like you'll see. There was, you know, my pictures all over bus benches all over LA, wearing like a big uh, curly headed wig with like wire rim glasses, you know. Um, but but and they, they it looked like an ad for like a doctor's office, you know. They they made it really, you know, and it says while you slept we anal, you know, it's like A N A L hyphen eyes your dreams. Uh, they just you know wrote it that way to be. The, the eye-catching, like, what idiot would write analyze your dream? Right. Analyze your dream? Why would they put the hyphen right there? Because they ran out of space, so it looked like analyze your dream, you know. It was all purposely done and really, really funny. Um, but uh, but really on, a, on adultswim.com will you be able to see the show. Cool. Well, man, I want to I uh, thank you. I mean, we had talked a while ago, and then uh, we didn't even get to talk to you about directing Johnny Dowers. He was just on uh, a few weeks ago. And uh, uh-huh. um, I'm glad I got. I'm glad I got to get you on now. Now you tweet. I know you're you're pretty active on Twitter. What's your What's your Twitter handle? Oh, it's. I think it's. Uh, it's. Is it a, at John Grice? J O N G R I E S, right? I think so. So, and, and you tweet a yeah. lot. You, you you get up there. You, you tweet out. Yeah, I, I. Oh, definitely. I mean, like I tweet out, watch the show, and I'll, or if I'm doing something interesting and you know fun and. Uh, uh, you know, do do, or if I have something to say, sometimes I I soapbox a little too much, but you know, whatever. Well, that's good though. Just so try and yeah, you gotta make your point. So so people follow him, John Grise, follow him, and if if you, if you go and you put at John Grise and it's not right, just go to Google and type John Grise Twitter, and that's all you gotta do because it's easy. And oh yeah, then it'll just push yeah, it. thanks. So people follow him. Follow me at Cooper Talk. That's at Cooper Talk. Go to my website, coopertalk.net. I have over 570 episodes. You can email me, Cooper, at coopertalk.net. Ask me, what's, what, you know, ask me what you're thinking. Tell me what you think about the show. If you have an idea for any guests, tell me. Um, Instagram and Words with Friends, Cooper Talk 1. I'm okay with Words with Friends. I mean, I win sometimes. I lose sometimes. But I will play it. So play an Instagram. What you'll get on Instagram is a lot of promo for the show and a lot of pictures of food. For you know, when I went through a health problem a few years ago, I wrote the cookbook, Stop the Salt. Now, you can go buy that book. You can buy it at Amazon or BarnesandNoble.com. Okay, you can do it there. Or you can go to StopTheSalt.com. And it's it's 120 easy, low-sodium recipes for one. No pictures to intimidate you. No big, long list of ingredients. If you don't have cumin, don't worry. There's no recipes with cumin. I personally cook with cumin, but this is an easy cookbook, and I'm more advanced. So anyway, you can go, but get it at StopTheSalt.com, because one, I make more money, and two, I'll sign it for you. <laughs> and with the holidays coming up, it's a perfect stocking stuffer, stocking stuffer, but yet people seem to keep go buying it at Amazon instead of this. But that's okay. So anyway, keep listening. 
Go follow John Grimes on Twitter. Look him up on IMDb. Watch his old work. Check it out. Go see uh, if you can find it. Pick Dream Corp LLC. Dream Corp LLC. Follow his work and keep listening. I'm Steve Cooper. I'm only as hip as my guest. Don't forget, drink your water, eat your vegetables, take your vitamins. You guys have a wonderful weekend, and I'll come back at you next week with a bunch of brand new episodes. Talk to you then, and have a good weekend. Thanks. Thanks so much.